0: Good morning and welcome to Holding Ground, the show that brings you a little bit of everything in the world of therapy and positive mental health. We are here live on 1150 AM Talk Radio every Monday morning at 9 AM, but you can stream this show anytime on your favorite podcast platform. My name is Laura Richer. I'm a psychotherapist and the founder of Anchor Light Therapy Collective in Seattle, Washington. Today we have a very special guest for you. I'd like to introduce Eric Pinkins. Eric is a former NFL player and draft pick of the Seattle Seahawks. It is very exciting for all of us Seattle fans to have a former Seahawk on the show. However, you might be wondering what an ex-pro athlete is doing on a radio show about therapy and mental health. Well, Eric Pinkins has a lot to share on this topic. He is an advocate for financial literacy. He is a board member for Urban Advocates and Achievers, which is an organization that supports youth in underprivileged communities. And he has his own journey with therapy and mental health to share. His willingness to be a role model for populations who might be resistant to seeking out mental health resources or may not believe that they have access is exactly why we wanted to invite him on the show. So Eric, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Laura and Holden Graham for having me on the show. That was a phenomenal introduction. (laughs)
0: Well, and also very true. So let's just get started. I'd love for you to share with our listeners a little bit about your background and your journey to the NFL.
1: Oh man, where to begin? Uh well I guess I'll start off where I was born. So I was born in San Diego, California. And my dad was in the military, so we moved around a lot. So pretty much I would say after a couple months, we moved to Guam for a little bit. And then after my brother was born, we moved to Georgia for a couple years. And unfortunately, when I was eleven, my parents ended up getting divorced. And after that divorce, I remember I helped my mom, me and my brother. Uh, Packed up the U-Haul and we had the little Honda Civic Accord attached to the back. And I remember my uncle was helping us drive all the way across the country from Georgia to Sacramento, California, because my mom had family out there in Sacramento. And I remember that I was enrolled in this elementary school called Martin Luther King K through A. And that was honestly the start of my journey going to the NFL and there's just one instant that really sticks out to me. Uh, This guy, his name is Mr. Chandler, and just as a teacher in general, which obviously has to do with my nonprofit, like when these teachers, when they get their tenures, which is basically after two years, they they pretty much feel like they could talk to students however they want to, because they know they can't really get fired. Mm -hmm. So that was pretty much the case. In this instance, I remember uh, my PE teacher, Mr. Chandler, he said that we were gonna play indoor hockey because it was raining outside. So we went into the cafeteria and we were picking teams. And then I remember he sat us up aligned on this stage. And I remember him pacing back and forth. And he just said, how, how many kids here wanna play collegiate sports at the division one level? And then I, I looked to my left, I looked to my right. There's about five of us. And then he said, How many people want to go to college, just in general? And that was pretty much everybody. And we had about 32 people in a class. So I remember Mr. Chandler saying, He said, Well, who are those people that want to play sports in Division One?' And I was like, uh, Me. And then a couple other of my friends as well. And then he said that you got. I virtually have no chance of playing Division One ball, especially coming out of this neighborhood. You guys need to get your degree and get a regular job. So from that moment on, that that really made me mad because your teachers should really be talking down on you like that. And I remember. Yeah, and how old were you then? Uh, At the time, I was 12.
0: Okay. Wow. Way to dash your dreams right from the start there.
1: Yes, exactly. So my, my mom said a little pick me up. And then I remember I was training my behind off and then the seventh grade went into the eighth grade. And then I enrolled at Kennedy High School and found out their football team sucked. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I transferred to Intercom High School, where I was bullied a lot, unfortunately, because mm-hmm. I carried myself with a lot of confidence. And for some reason, people didn't like that. And I was bullied on football team too because they wanted their friend to start at safety instead of me because he was older than me so instead of just falling into the crowd and what everybody said it honestly just made me work 10 times harder and when it comes to like the statistics to a division one scholarship there is 123 college institutions in the nations that is eligible to play football and out of those 123 institutions, there's 63 scholarships for each institution. So that is a total of 15,167 scholarships in the nation out of 7.3 million student athletes that are eligible for that year. And I'm an wow. analytics guy, so that is a 2% chance that you actually have to get an Division One scholarship and go into college. So I didn't really let the naysayers tell me that I couldn't go to college because you, once you put your mind to something, you can do it. And that's exactly what I did with deliberate practice and focus and a lot of resiliency. Mm-hmm. And then that's when I ended up getting a couple of Division One scholarships. And then I chose to go to San Diego State University. And that was actually a journey in itself as well, just starting off my freshman year. Cause like I told you before, uh, my Confident guy, and I guess uh, within a hierarchy in a the system, they don't really like people who are confident like that. Really, so I, I think
0: that that's what, what you would need to be really successful. So that surprises me.
1: Yeah, I was. Yeah. I was very. I always say that I was very outspoken to the point okay. that when I knew that there was something wrong, that I would say it, and I wouldn't just let the code slide and say that it was right.
2: Mm. And
1: there's a time that was that I remember very vividly. It was freshman year. Uh, I was playing as a true freshman. I remember that all of us, we had to stand up in a position room and we had to state our name and we also had to state what profession we wanted to go to after college. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was the last one to go So everybody down the line, uh, they said their degree, and then they said the job that was associated with their degree. And I was the only person that said that my degree, and I said I wanted to go to the NFL. That was my goal. (laughs) And then I remember um, my position coach telling me, like, you need to be more realistic. It's a 0.001% chance that you actually will get a chance to go to the NFL. I just remember that actually devastated me because I realized when it comes to coaches, how much of an advocate they need to be for you in order to make it to the next level. So that really hurt me, but instead of just sitting back and not believing myself, it made me work 10 times harder and it made me wanna be first in everything and it made me wanna be the first one in the room, the last one out looking at film doing a whole bunch of deliberate practice, practicing on my skill. And then, you know, so my freshman year, turn a sophomore year, then your junior and senior year are pretty much your most important years when it comes to going to the NFL and that's what NFL scouts really watch. Mm-hmm. And I remember that I was going into the season as a starter mm-hmm. and I was starting five games. And then I remember we were playing Fresno State that week and my position coach wanted to mess around with me. And he pretty much put up this impossible question that nobody could answer when he went around the room. And I was the last one that he wanted to ask a question. And instead of saying that to anybody else, he told me, he was like, if you get this question right, you'll remain the starter. If you don't get this question right, you're gonna be pushed down the second string. And when it comes to going to the NFL and NFL scouts, they really look at when it comes to your statistics, how many starts you have, what your stats like, and what your academics are like as well. So I wanted to stack up as many starts as possible. And obviously I didn't even get the question right either. So he took me from first string to second string and I could have felt sorry for myself when we went into the Fresno State game, but instead I was just like, you know what? I'm gonna give it up to God and I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna see what happens. So I was just playing on special teams and literally every single time they kick the ball off, I was the first one down there and I made the tackle. Every time they punt the ball, I was the first one down there, made the tackle. And I just kept looking at my position, coach, are you gonna put me in on defense yet? And then the person in front of me, uh, he wasn't, beating up the expectations so that's when I finally got in and I remember it was in the second quarter with about seven minutes to go and Fresno State at the time their starting quarterback was Derek Carr and they had Devontae Adams at wide receiver and I remember that I ended up picking off Derek Carr and I took that back all the way for a touchdown and then I looked up into the crowd and I literally could see my mom my auntie my brother and then that really stood out to me because I remember my mom was in tears crying.
0: Oh what an amazing moment.
1: Yeah, that was a that was a huge blessing. Yeah And I... when it came to my senior year, uh, I really had a good season and I know there are accolades that you need to have by your senior year for NFL Scout purposes. And those accolades included either first or first or first or second team All Mountain West, or you were a captain, or you got invited to the combine, or you got invited to these three All Star games. And towards the end of my senior year, I thought I was going to get an invite to something because I my stats pretty much matched up with the top. People in my position in the nation at the time. And for some reason, I didn't get an invite to anything. I didn't mm-hmm. get an invite to you no know, all star games. I didn't get an invite to the NFL combine. I didn't get first or second team All Mountain West. And that's what I was talking about when it comes to coaches being your biggest advocate because they could either deteriorate you or they could accelerate you. Mm-hmm. So instead of feeling sorry, all, the only opportunity I had was Pro Day, which anybody could go to Pro Day. And when it comes to the combine, well, what that really entails is they, they invite the 225 best prospects in a nation and they have them compete against one another as far as seeing how many reps you could do 225 how high you could jump on a vertical, how far you could jump on a broad jump, you get position drills, and then you gotta do an IQ test as well. So, like I said, instead of feeling sorry for myself, I had three months to train. I wrote down every single time. That was the top time in my position, and I put that time on a yellow post-it note, and I put that post-it note on the mirror in my bathroom. So every time I woke up every single morning to go brush my teeth in a bathroom, I look at the post-it notes and I see these times and it really set my intention for the day when it came to training. And then I did that for three months. And then when pro day came, I got the results that I expected. Um, I got the top time in my position in the nation uh, in my 40 yard dash. I got the top number and reps when it came to 225 and I tied for jumping the highest in a vertical. And I got the best in my broad jump as well. So I actually went from not having any interest to having a whole bunch of interest. And that's when I ended up getting seven NFL visits and the Seattle Seahawks was my last visit. And I thought it was crazy that I was literally sitting in Pete Carroll's office with John Snyder Wow, talking to me. And these are people that I looked up to. I remember watching them on TV. I remember watching the Rose Bowl back in 2006 and I was like, wow, like I'm really here now. That is crazy. And then after the visit, uh, two months later was when the NFL draft came. And then that's when I got called by the Seattle Seahawks and the rest is history.
0: So I love your story. And I think it is so remarkable because you had several obstacles along the way, which I'm sure a lot of people do that are are, are working towards becoming a professional athlete. But instead of using those as reasons or excuses to to stop, you know, your coach saying like, hey, you're probably not going to make it anyway. You might as well focus on someone else that actually motivated you. Why do you think that is?
1: Well, it's it's because I had a personal belief in myself and I had a chip on my shoulder from basically all the negativity growing up from people telling me that I couldn't do something because ultimately the the only person that could tell you, you can't do something is yourself. If you say yeah. you can't do it, then you can't do it. But if you tell yourself you could do it, it may take you a little longer. But if you were to put into deliberate practice, you could be just as good as a person who's just talented at that particular thing. So yeah. I just and really I- had a personal belief in myself.
0: And I think that that's the assumption that people have sometimes, that maybe it's just, you know, easy to get to the NFL, for example, that you just must be a really talented athlete and and you don't face any obstacles. But that, in fact, is, is not the case.
1: No, that's not the case at all. There is a whole bunch of scenarios that goes into it when it comes to going to the NFL, when it goes to high school to get in a scholarship, to go into an accredited university. So you can actually have the best opportunity for NFL scouts to scout you out out of that school. And then you have to go through being a student athlete with Mm -hmm. doing workouts and playing games and also being able to write your papers and be able to study for your tests. Mm -hmm. It's a very interdisciplinary process when it comes to going to the NFL.
0: Yes. But I love your message, whether you're wanting to go to the NFL or – Or accomplish anything. It's really your belief in yourself that's going to determine whether you can get there or not. So that I love that. So you're you're 22 years old. You get to the NFL, Mm -hmm. and then what happens?
1: Yeah. So I'll say my rookie year. I was. I remember a day before training camp. I was training with Earl Thomas in an indoor practice facility, and I remember I did a speed turn, and I felt a sharp pain. And I didn't really pay no mind to it. And I finished up the workout. And then I talked to this athletic trainer the next day. And then I told him that my foot was hurting. And then he went to give me an MRI and told me that I had a Jones fracture. So I had to pretty much redshirt that year. And that year was honestly a Cinderella story because that's the year that we went to the Super Bowl. But unfortunately, we lost to New England Patriots, you know, where they should have handed the ball off. To one of my good. Yes, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> and then it just got intercepted, and then the Patriots took away our Cinderella story, unfortunately. But what the what the NFL is like is it's not like how everybody think it is, as far as like the glamour, the lights, the money. It, it really is, honestly, the complete opposite of what you think, and you really have to come to work every single day. Your job is on the line every single day your job is not secured. And you really have to be the best at what you do. And I really love the grind, but I just really didn't like the uncertainty that came along with being in the NFL.
0: And so I know through that experience, you have become really passionate about uh, financial literacy and teaching others about financial literacy. Tell me a little bit about how that experience triggered that, that for you, that, that you became interested in this.
1: Yeah, So I would say after my third year, when I got released with the Seahawks, uh, that's when, cause I had my, my shoulder, I tore my labrum. It was situations out of my control. But after I tore my labrum and I got released instead of feeling sorry for myself, I realized I had to do something with the capital that I did have. So I ended up reading a lot of books that had to do with real estate investing. And it's really not about the knowledge unless you take action on that knowledge. Mm -hmm. So that's when I really started flipping properties and I started offering investors returns of a rate of return about 12%. And we actually just finished up a project a couple months ago. I'll just give you a quick case scenario on that, just to give you a little bit of financial literacy and education. Mm -hmm. So we got this property, it's a residential property, 60% below market value because you make your money when you buy, not when you sell. Mm-hmm. And we offered a 50K minimum investment at 12%. So what that entails is once we reconfigure the property, which takes typically between one to three months, we buy it below market value and we sell it at fair market value because of appreciation. That investor that invested that 50K at 12%, would have earned a grand total of 56K and that 12% equivalates to $6,000. So after I realized that, man, this this active income is really good, but reading this book, uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad from Robert Kiyosaki, he pretty much explains as far as like, if you're always working for active income, you're never gonna be wealthy, but if you're always having money work for you, that's when you become wealthy
0: yeah and then, that's a great book i love that book
1: yes indeed and then after um a couple of sessions when it comes to these summits i came up with the audacious goal of purchasing my first apartment complex this 30 unit that's 45 minutes away from where i stay in sacramento with my business partner And we purchased this property for $1.5 million at 60% loan to value, which indicates that 60% of the financing makes up the purchase price. So we had to come up with 40% of the equity and within our business plan, we do a 90 10 split meaning that 90% of the cash flows goes to the investors and 10% goes to the general partners, which will be me and my business partner. And we really make up our value within a sweat equity when it comes to managing the property and we had to raise five hundred thousand dollars for for the multi-family property and we got five people to invest in this project and they invested a hundred thousand dollars and we offered them a preferred return of six percent meaning that of their a hundred thousand dollars they will get six thousand dollars at the end of the year and what preferred return means is that that investor who invests they get paid out first before anybody else and then when it comes to the capital event we typically like to sell at the year five and right now we're on year two but just to give you a scenario let's say that we were on year three and the market was great the investors would have made eighteen thousand dollars on top of their hundred thousand dollars and if we were to sell in year five which is what we plan to do the investors will be making $30,000 $30,000 on top of their $100,000. And then we just keep the reciprocity going and we just keep going after that. And that's when I realized as far as like, man, I, I could really provide value towards other people because the people that I see investing in commercial real estate are not NFL people or they're not professional athletes in general.
0: What are some of the things that you see? Because I mean, these are you know young guys going into the NFL and they're getting... All you know, maybe some money for the first time, and and some fame and accolades. And what are some of the things that they're doing that ultimately are going to work against them? You obviously took a very different path in in what you decided to do with your money. But what are some of the the things that you see people do that work against them in the end?
1: Yeah, so I would say because NFL is is made up of seventy percent minorities, African Americans, right? And a lot of these players, they come from impoverished neighborhoods. And what was prevalent back in the day was redlining. And if you don't know what redlining is, it means that they actually segregated wealth from impoverished neighborhoods. They wouldn't Mm -hmm. do any type of lending. So how are parents supposed to teach kids financial literacy if they're segregated from wealth themselves? Mm -hmm. So what these kids do, Uh, which was along with myself. You know, we we look on the TV and we see our idols, superstar basketball players, superstar football players, movie stars. And you see them spending all this money. You see them having a big house and you see them taking care of their family every chance they can. So once you get to that professional level, that's all you know how to do. And you find value in spending more than saving and investing.
0: That makes sense
1: so yeah so yeah when it comes to to athletes saving their money is it's really non-existent because of how we grew up and when it comes to the financial literacy they don't really teach that enough in the nfl Mm -hmm. they just teach you as far as like to stay away from unscrupulous people that want to take advantage of you because they know you have money and they, they offer them these wealth advisors, but these wealth advisors, they don't even teach them how their money is working for them. And they're just sitting in an account getting paid and they're not even knowing how their money is working and how they can maximize their dollar. So that's when I came up with the ideology behind teaching financial literacy, investing in commercial real estate, because when it comes to our investors and our current property, they're called limited partners, which is, mm-hmm called accredited investors. And what that indicates is being an accredited investor. If you're single, you have to make $200,000 annually, and you have to have previous bank statements proven that you made $200,000. And if you're married jointly, it's $300,000. And if you're single, you have to have at least a million dollars net worth, which is not including your house. And when it comes to these NFL players, as soon as they sign that contract, they're automatically eligible to invest into this wonderful investment vehicle that we call multifamily properties and commercial real estate. And the whole ideation behind that is to, to teach them and not to sell them when it comes to investing in the commercial real estate. Because if you teach somebody how to fish, they, they could teach that to their kids. But if you're just mm-hmm. giving them the fish, They're not going to know how to fish for themselves, and they're always going to have to depend on somebody. So the whole point is to make sure that they're competent in their investments that they're going into.
0: So I know that you are passionate about supporting youth and financial literacy and that you're involved with an organization called Urban Advocates and Achievers. Tell me a little bit more about that organization.
1: Yeah, so I am on a board of the Achievement Mentor Program and our mission at UAA is to provide students and families a holistic and personalized approach that empowers both the student and their family in their pursuit of academic achievement, excellence, educational equity, and economic sustainability regardless of socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to what we're really trying to stop when it comes to inequalities is The school to pipeline to prison and what that indicates is uh, it really starts off at the third grade when they are being tested on how efficient they are in their math and reading and if they're not efficient if they get low test scores. uh, analytics and statistics shows that's how many prisons that they're going to build based off of a certain number of low test scores. And when it comes to these low test scores, they they come from the impoverished neighborhoods because they're segregated from educational opportunities that, that make them competent human beings in society. So what we do is we go into these impoverished neighborhoods in Sacramento and we put them into this program and their family as well. And when it comes to my program particular, I took six months to write this 12-month curriculum in the binder. And what that entails is the mentor that's aligned with that child, they're gonna go week by week for 12 months and it just teaches them the basics of financial literacy, what their learning style is, How to conduct yourself, how to speak, how to look people in the eyes—pretty much just life skills that you need in order to be a competent human being and confident in your abilities and what you have to offer to the world.
0: Wow, that is so important, you know. And and unlike you, uh, there's a lot of people who are going to be told at a young age that they don't have a chance and that they just need to settle for less. And you took that as a a something that motivated you to move forward, but that isn't true for everybody. So that is such an important service to be offering for kids so that they don't get those negative messages. And they do have those advocates that are encouraging them to move forward and take advantage of the opportunities that are available to them.
1: Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am.
0: Well, Eric, this is such a great conversation. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to continue talking to ex-NFL player, Eric Pinkins about men's mental health, grief, and more. So stay tuned. You're listening to Holding Ground on KKNW.
3: High school sports are as American as apple pie. And going to a game or meet is a chance to see the stars of tomorrow shine today. But as anybody who's ever attended a high school sporting event in Washington knows, you can't have the stars without the stripes. High schools are currently looking for new officials in almost every sport. Who looks good in stripes? Anybody looking for a way to stay connected to a sport they love If you like the idea of giving back to your community while earning a few extra bucks, chances are you'd look good in stripes too. We want to hear from you. We need to hear from you. No officials means no games. No stripes means no stars. And what kind of America would that be? Washington needs more high school officials. Go to highschoolofficials.com to sign up or learn more. That's highschoolofficials.com.
0: Thanks for tuning in to our brand new show, Holding Ground. You can find us here every Monday morning at 9 a.m. I'm Laura Richard, founder of Anchor Light Therapy Collective. And I'm Michelle Mooney, the co-host of Holding Ground, a therapist at Anchor Light Therapy Collective. Our passion, our one big thing in life, above and beyond love, relationships, trauma, addiction, and healing. Our specialty is helping others. Every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Find us online at anchorlighttherapy.com.
2: I'm Dr. Anthony Lisewitz and this is Climate Connections. Most Americans simply flush the toilet, and human waste disappears out of sight and out of mind. But in some rural areas, people often face hazardous sewage leaking into their yards or backing up into their sinks and bathtubs. We have been shamed to not discussing these problems, and that's why people don't know about it. Catherine Coleman Flowers is founder of the Center for Rural Enterprise and Environmental Justice. For years, she's worked to address sanitation problems in Lowndes County, Alabama, where she grew up. There, many residents live beyond the reach of the municipal wastewater system, so they rely on septic systems to filter wastewater on-site. But their septic systems often fail. Flowers says they do not work effectively in this region because hard clay soil does not absorb water well, and climate change is causing more extreme storms.
1: If we get a lot of rain, the septic systems are going to fail.
2: Flower says that the problem goes beyond Lowndes County. People in many regions face similar challenges, so she says it's important to develop new technologies that can handle the changing climate.
1: With sea level rise and groundwater levels increasing, we've got to do something different.
2: Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org.
3: Time is funny. Sometimes it seems fast, another time slow. When it comes to time slots remaining on Alternative Talk 1150, time is running out. In fact, there are just a few primetime slots available. So if you want to host your own radio program, the time to call 425-653-1150 is right now. Nope, no time for excuses. Dial 425-653-1150 to find out how affordable it can be to host a radio show. Alternative Talk, we have an opportunity waiting just for you. Alternative Talk 1150.
0: Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, we are speaking with Eric Pinkins, who is an ex-pro athlete and a former Seahawk draft pick. Eric, what do you think some of the barriers are that prevent men from seeking out mental health services?
1: Well, I, I can only speak from personal experience. And I think what, what stopped me for a while was the fact uh, how I was raised. And I was raised to be this masculine human being that never should cry. And if I complain, then I'll be considered weak. And that that really that really catches up to you. Yeah. What are some day.
0: of the negative impacts do you think to that, that that you've seen for yourself and others?
1: Yeah, well, if you keep things bottled up on the inside pretty much anything could trigger you and you get triggered then that means things they they lash out in unhealthy ways and you could say things that you know that's unregrettable Mm -hmm. that that you can never take back because the the tongue is a powerful thing and Mm -hmm. you could do actions that you regret that could put you behind bars it's it's really important and it's imperative that you think about your mental health. And when it, when it came to me playing in the NFL, like when they emphasized on mental health, they were pretty much just talking about concussions and how they're gonna make the helmet safer. They didn't really mm-hmm. convey the importance of taking care of your thoughts, which is the true measure of mental health. Yeah. Because if you can't control your thoughts, cause you live in your mind, like whatever, your mind conceives, that's, that's what it believes and that's that's the view of the world. So if you can't take care of your thoughts and if, you, if you can't be able to convey your thoughts to someone else, then it's just gonna stay bottled internally and then it's just gonna unlash in healthy unhealthy ways, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. And I would imagine, you know, as a as a pro football player, player, or pro athlete, you're supposed to be the toughest of the tough. And that there's this perception that if you express anything other than that, that it's that it's weakness.
1: Yes, ma'am. That's, that's definitely the case, because we are the gladiators out there. Yeah. Where we go into the Coliseum and when everybody sees us, that's that's what they see us as as gladiators. So they don't ever expect us to be soft, cry or ever convey our feelings. And we, on the other hand, as the gladiators, we don't want to do that because us personally, we don't want to seem like we're weak minded or we don't want people saying that we're soft because that's probably what we were called when we were younger. So it brings back preconditioned mental models.
0: Yeah. How do you think that the NFL could do mental health better or better support athletes from a mental health perspective?
1: Uh, I believe they could promote mental health more in an aspect as far as taking care of your thoughts. And when you're taking care of your thoughts, that's seeking out a therapist. And I didn't realize the importance of therapy until I actually started going to therapy myself, mm. and it really has helped me out tremendously. And I would convey to everybody that that's going through the NFL jungle that you should get a therapist because there's a lot of ups and downs in the roads and we're not really taught about mental health or even had access to mental health depending on what type of neighborhood you come from. Yeah. So it's honestly, it's an oblivious language that most people don't even know about.
0: And so I know that, and I'm so glad that you are here today and willing to share your your journey with mental health and therapy. And I know that you recently had to address a serious mental health challenge that most likely all of us are going to encounter at some point in our lives, and that is grief, and that that's been something that you've been working on. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so when it, when it comes to the grieving process, I believe that it's imperative that you take time to yourself mm-hmm. and... I think I believe that it's imperative that you seek out a therapist as well, because unfortunately, when, when I went through the grieving process and still going through the grieving process is because of my little brother who unfortunately passed away a couple months ago in December. I'm so sorry, and it's really still sad to this day. Uh, I yeah. still remember like it was yesterday. Uh, I remember I was just got done playing tennis and around 6.11, my dad told me that Roderick, which is my brother's name, got into a car accident because he was riding his motorcycle. And just knowing Rod, uh, I thought he was just going to bounce back because he always does crazy things like that. And he's like a daredevil and he always finds his way back up on his feet. So I just remember my dad was, had us in a group message and he just kept updating us. And what happened was it was just a regular routine for my brother to just go down to Walmart, which is a five minute drive to go pick up diapers for my niece, Skylar. And as he was driving down this arterial road in Georgia, the it's very rural out there. So they didn't really have a lot of stoplights. It was more yield based and he was riding his motorcycle and then this woman pulled out and she was very indecisive and then she just stopped in the middle of the road and then my brother ended up hitting the car and then he flew off his bike and then he got pinned under another car and unfortunately he didn't really get up and he had to get helicoptered to the hospital and that's when my dad was keeping me up to date, saying he was on a ventilator. He was bleeding out, he was bleeding from his mm-hmm. brain, unfortunately. And then I remember I'll say December, December 21st at 10 40 p.m. That's when they took him off life support and then transitioned into the afterlife. And I didn't really handle the grieving process in a traditional way because I just always been known for for being resilient so at first Mm -hmm. I just started keeping my mind busy just continuously working and then I started realizing like I, I was starting thinking all these crazy thoughts and that's when I wanted to seek out therapy and then once I seeked out therapy that's when my therapist gave me techniques to be able to cope with the pain as far as like journaling and meditating and going on walks and just pretty much doing things to to take care of yourself and take care of your mental health. And it really feels good as far as we're actually able to just get whatever is on your mind off your chest. Because if as long as you you have all those thoughts bottled in, there's no way that you're going to be a sane person and there's no way you're really going to see the world in a positive light. And that's when I realized seeking out therapy was the best thing for me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and a lot of times that's what we want to do when we experience a traumatic event, like the loss of a, a loved one is just set it aside and, just power through and push through. And and I'm so glad that you're sharing this with other people that that really isn't possible and that that can actually be very detrimental and that you can get help and support so that you can process it in a healthier way. How did things change for you once you started working with the therapist?
1: I will say things changed for me in a very positive way. It made me be a lot more vulnerable which is a foreign language to NFL players. So So it just made me realize the importance of of connectivity within people and being able to convey as far as your problems with with your best friends Mm -hmm. and with your family members as well. And with the therapist, because honestly, if I if I wouldn't have the, the therapist that I that I have now, then I'll probably will be in a very dark place. Yeah because yeah. the therapist is the one that gave me the techniques as when it comes to going through the grieving process
0: so uh, one thing you mentioned earlier which i think is important to talk about is access and that in mental health resources sometimes people believe that they are not accessible to everyone or they might only be accessible to people who have money or good health insurance and that. That acts that there is a barrier at times, but there also are other resources available to people. Is that something that you address with urban advocates and and resources that might be available to people in underprivileged communities in terms of like community mental health? And do you connect with people with those types of resources?
1: Yes, indeed. So we we definitely have a we have a lot of partnerships um, Mm -hmm. when it comes within our entity to help these kids out and help them become the best people that they can be, because a lot of these kids they grow up in single-family households, and that can affect their mental health. So we, we actually do address the issue when it comes to them being single-family by having these mentors pretty much take them under their wing. And like whenever they have a problem, they could actually go to their assigned mentor, and they could actually figure out a reason why you're feeling this way and give a solution to what you can do. So you can move forward in a positive way and when it comes to underprivileged neighborhoods because there's really not a lot of funding going to those neighborhoods there's really not a lot of access when it comes to mental health institutes like therapy or just finding ways to, to take care of your thoughts yeah so that's why urban advocates and achievers we we want to help that and provide the opportunities for these kids to be able to be competent in themselves and be able to realize that they're more than what their circumstance is.
0: Yeah. Wow. That sounds, that's just such an important service and that's such a great organization and service that you're providing. So I, I'm wondering now that you've had this experience, what, what advice would you give your 22 year old self, Eric, that's just starting in the NFL and going through this process?
1: Yes so if i were to give advice to my 22 year old self i would say to seek out a therapist early Mm. especially if you're going into professional sports and especially if you're going to the nfl because there's a lot of ups and downs that you don't expect and if you don't know how to handle those situations then your actions are going to unlash in an unhealthy way
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it's, it's really not going to be a pretty picture. So yes, I, w- I would definitely advise for them to get a therapist because there's going to be a lot of ups and downs in the NFL and we're not taught to, to know how to handle our thoughts when these negative circumstances happen.
0: Because it's such a unique experience. I mean, not that's not something that the average person is going to, to experience at such a young age. So that is so important. And what about with financial literacy? If you were working with young NFL players coming up, what would you, what would, advice would you give them?
1: I would tell them to save their money as much as possible and invest their money as much as possible because the lifespan of an NFL career on the average is three years. Mm. So, while you're making that magnificent income, it's very imperative that you invest your income into income producing assets so you can sustain and you can accumulate your wealth outside of football so you can have a smooth transition out of the NFL instead of figuring out what's going to be your next opportunity outside the NFL.
0: What, and so what are you doing now? I know you talked about your investing in real estate, but you've had a very successful transition out of the NFL and, and used your resources to go to the next step. What are you doing today?
1: Yeah, so today right now, um, I'm actually in my grad school program for real estate development at the University of Arizona. And I'm also in the process of looking for another income producing asset for investment opportunity. Mm-hmm. And we have a couple projects going on right now in the residential sector with flipping. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty busy right now for me.
0: Sounds like it. Do you, is that something that you have an interest in doing is working with, with young NFL players in the future around financial literacy? Is this information that you're sharing with people right now?
1: Yes, ma'am, it's definitely information I love to share. I would love to teach everybody in the NFL, people who are just getting in the NFL, people who are leaving the NFL, and the people who have been in the NFL are still going through it. I think it's imperative that you guys learn financial literacy so you could have that smooth transition out of the NFL because there is no way that a person should be able to work their entire life to reach the highest pinnacle in their profession. Mm-hmm. And still feeling fear and have nothing to show due to the lack of financial literacy. Yeah. And that's really a painful thing because ultimately we spend our whole lives, eat, sleep, and breathe training to get to this impossible place. And then once we get there, that's honestly really just the beginning. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, yeah, plus
0: they're so young when they get there. They have their whole lives ahead of them still.
1: Yes, exactly. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Because the whole point is to, to give them an avenue after football as well to, to be a savvy commercial real estate investor.
0: Hmm. Well, if Eric, if somebody wanted more information about uh, Urban Advocates or about financial literacy, where could they find you?
1: Yeah. So if they want to learn about financial literacy, they, they can go to my website. It's just and. If they want to learn more about Urban Advocates and Achievers is www.urbanadvocates.org.
0: Fantastic. Well, I can't believe it. We are out of time for today, but I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your remarkable story. We so appreciate your willingness to come on the show and talk about mental health.
1: And thank you for having me. I really Thanks. enjoyed being on here.
0: Thank you so much. And we will be on Holding Ground next week at 9 a.m. Monday. See you then. Thanks for tuning in to Holding Ground. You can find us here every Monday morning at 9 a.m. I'm Laura Richer, owner of Anchor Light Therapy Collective. Find us online at anchorlighttherapy.com. We'll see you next week.